since finishing Isaiah, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the gospel. I talked about that last week, and uh, this week I want to point out <clears throat> something that I mentioned last week, which is that the gospel is not a New Testament invention. It's not something that came up as God's plan B. Rather, salvation in Christ goes all the way back into the eternal counsel of God. It was planned before everything, before the world was ever created. And I want to look at that this morning and draw your attention to some details about that truth. <clears throat> the first detail I want to draw to your attention is found in several passages, beginning in 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 19. Now we've just read the whole chapter, <clears throat> but just to uh, point out, it's Peter has introduced himself, or not himself really, he's, he's, uh, he's given a, a commendation of grace and peace to those who are in those places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he's writing them because of the common salvation that they all have. And he, he says that this salvation uh, was something that the prophets prophesied beforehand, that the grace of God was to be yours, and that those prophets searched diligently to find out <clears throat> um, to find out what, when, or the time, or whatever the Spirit of Christ was indicating to them. And they uh, looked diligently into all of that. They never really understood as they even wrote themselves. And that's what Peter indicates. And that's what a lot of people don't like to talk about. Um, when the Old Testament writers wrote, um, especially the prophets, they uh, were not writing their own perspective. They weren't looking at the world around them and making some uh, prediction about the future. They were writing God's word. And um, in preaching classes, or in even teaching classes about the Bible, the one thing they want you to understand, and they want you to, uh, they want you to find out, is what the historical context of the of the writing was, and they want you to understand what the purpose of the the human author was. <clears throat> but um, the words are coming. So, uh, but uh, those, the purpose of the authors is not really known to us. We can, uh, because we don't believe that they were writing about something that they intended to pass on to us in terms of their human understanding. They were declaring to us what God, through the Holy Spirit, was telling them to say. So the author is only, in a secondary sense, the prophet. Yes, he wrote in his own words. But he wrote what God wanted. Now you say, well, how can that be? Well, usually we have a defective view of divine providence, right? What is providence? Do you remember from the catechism? 
God's ruling and governing all of His creatures and all of their actions. Right now, right in this space, whether you feel it or not, because you're not going to feel it, we are in the presence of God. Okay? And God in His providence has brought us here. Because God is working and willing to do those things that He wants done. Well, when the prophets wrote, God was, God was as near to them as the breeze on their face. Right? And He was working in them and with them. And they were writing what, they, what He wanted them to know. Not what they were trying to communicate. And so, oftentimes, <clears throat> we get bogged down because, uh, do you all know what the Enlightenment was? Do you remember the Enlightenment? It began with Rene Descartes, they say, though it really didn't. <clears throat> he just put it in a way that everybody uh, gravitated toward. But the reality is that the Enlightenment set human understanding and human reason above everything so that <clears throat> so that what happens is that everything that we experience is subject to human reason that's why there can't be any religion for many scientists today because they can't subject religion they can't subject the scripture to their own human reason everything has to be validated by human reason. And if it can't be validated by human reason, then it's not true. <clears throat> now those same folks would have a very difficult time validating by human reason what love is. And so what they do is they say, well, it's just chemical reactions in the brain. Well, we have a different view of reality. And as Christians, we should not be... Um, as Christians, we should not be... Um, coming to the scripture with that attitude. So we come to the scripture in dependence on the Holy Spirit and we try to understand not what Peter had to say to us, but we can understand that plainly, but it is what God had to say to us and has to say to us now. So as Peter writes about these prophets who wrote and really didn't understand they were inquiring about the person or the time uh, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories he's talking about those prophets and then he makes this statement in verse um, well, it begins in verse 17 he says if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he was foreknown before the foundation of the world that was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ was like a lamb without blemish. He was foreknown when? 
before the foundation of the world. Well, I kind of think that means before creation. That's the foundation of the world. Uh, and he was known prior to that time. Um, so before the world was created, before Adam and Eve fell into sin, Christ <coughs> was already foreknown as this lamb without spot or blemish. But he was made manifest in these last times for your sake. So, do you see these two, these two ends? You have before the foundation of the world, and then in these historical times. So, Christ is foreknown but that, and as, a, as a lamb, but he's revealed in time, historical time, He's revealed in time when it's time for him to give his life on the cross. But that wasn't unknown before. See, God, that was part of his plan. That's difficult for us to understand, doesn't it? Because why? Why would God? Why would God create something? that he knew would fall, that he knew would sin against him. Adam and Eve didn't catch God off guard, you know, like, oh my, look at what happened. What did you guys do? No, it wasn't like that. It wasn't anticipated like, well, you know, um, if they do this, then I'll do this, and if they do that, then I'll do that. It's not that way. It was part of God's Foreknowledge is part of his plan that Adam and Eve would fall. Now, we try to reconcile that in our mind. And again, I'm going to ask you to to not do that because it may not be reconcilable in our mind. You know, you could argue that God planned to create everything and that he knew ahead of time. Um, If you want to say God looked ahead and saw the you know, saw that they would. He created ahead of time these people with free will and he knew that they would sin. Well, that, that would probably be true, but he still went through this plan. But And his plan included that fall. Because his plan already included Christ as a lamb slain before the con- foundation of the world. And so we'll ask that question. I keep trying to ask that question to you. Why would God do something like that? As we go on to another passage that I want to draw to your attention. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in common faith, grace and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. <clears throat> now again, it's a typical greeting. 
but it's been uh, the, the typical greetings in Greek literature were all the same, Greek letter writing, they were all the same. But Paul takes the, that typical greeting and he expands on it as he always does in all of his epistles, except maybe Galatians. <laughs> but um, it's uh, people, they, they just summarize it as a combination of grace and peace, and that's true, it's there. But Paul adds more to this than just saying, of giving accommodation of grace and peace because he makes this he makes these statements he says that uh, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ why or for what purpose for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth so there's a kind of a twofold purpose there that is for their sake of uh, their faith and for their knowledge then he says that 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 knowledge accords with godliness. And then he makes the statement, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Um, The older ESV uh, actually puts it in, uh, translates it uh, correctly, which is before time began. So before time began is when? If God is timeless, he stands, we always say he stands outside of time. That's probably not a good way to say it. Uh, But time doesn't mean anything to God. One day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day, right? So time is irrelevant to God. Um, It doesn't change him. It doesn't affect him. It only affects us. And, uh, you know, if you want to read a good, uh, uh, some good thing, uh, some uh, interesting ideas about time, read uh, St. Augustine. He'll uh, give you some, some interesting things to think about. <clears throat> because time is really uh, something that we keep track of. Like in the Old Testament, there was time, right? There was a new moon. Uh, then there was the... Um, then there were the feast days and all that. But the time was used not so you could know what time it was like. Is it time to eat lunch? You know, or should I take a break now because it's my turn to take a break so I get 15 minutes break. Nobody nobody lived that way. Uh, time for people in the Bible was really very uh, easy to understand. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the, <clears throat> the fourth hour of the day. Um, it's the sixth or the ninth hour of the day, and uh, but it was always judged by the sun, and uh, the the moon and all that. They they were they had a lunar calendar, so their year was off, and they had to be adjusted every once in a while. But uh, they didn't have uh, they weren't as time conscious as we are. So when Paul says that God made this promise of eternal life or I should say of hope of eternal life, before time began, he's talking about before creation because that is when the sun, moon, and stars are set into the heavens to determine times and years and all that kind of stuff. That's when time began. So before that time, Paul says, God promised hope of eternal life And then he says the same thing Peter says, only in different words, in verse 3. And um, at the proper time, that is, the proper time right now, 
in his word through the preaching. It, it's the proper time. It manifested in his word. It was manifested. It, was, it came to light at a particular historical moment with Christ and then the apostles were told to proclaim the gospel. So you have something done before time manifesting itself in history, which is the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, dying for our sins and our hope in Him, and the proclamation of the gospel. All that takes place at a particular point in time, and we're still living in that time where the proclamation takes place. But when did it start? Before time began. And what was it for? Hope of eternal life. But why would you need hope for eternal life of eternal life before time began? Nobody was even there. So who, who was the hope given to? Who was given this message of hope for our salvation? Well, again, we come to the end of that passage, and I just want to ask you, ask you a question, and that is, um, <clears throat> why would God do that? Why would God create something that's going to fall into sin and rebel against him and that he's going to have to redeem by the blood of his own son. Why would he do that? When I try to answer that question as we go on. Well, now I want to change, change pace a little bit and go to a gospel. I'd like for you to turn to Luke chapter 22. <clears throat> Luke chapter 22. And I want to look at uh, <clears throat> verses 24 to 30. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 30. Dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at a table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at tables? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the apostles are arguing about who's the greatest. <clears throat> uh, I guess we're not so different from them, are we? We <laughs> always want to be the greatest. Uh, this is it's the vanity of... of uh, of life, I guess that we all want to be looked at as numero uno. You know, I want to do the best job, and I want to be acknowledged for that. And um, so, uh, and it's a it's something that plagues, I think, all of us in one to one degree or another. I'm not saying everybody's as bad as everybody else, but it does plague us from one in one degree or another. All of us, it does. I know children. That's true for. Of course, I won't 
say which ones in, in here, but um, I know you guys are all okay, but we all want to be good at what we do, don't we? And we all want to be recognized, don't we? And if we're like in fifth place, and somebody else is in first place, and we're standing before the whole school, and we get fifth place, and they get first place, we're saying, ugh, why didn't I get first place? One time I did a paper, and I got a, in seminary, I got a B-plus back. You know, I thought I deserved an A. So I went to the professor and said, tell me something, um, what about my paper is a B-plus instead of an A? I don't understand. I said, you didn't mark up anything, you didn't say, and so then he told me, and he's, and, but in the end he said, you know, John, the only thing I can say to you is this, that it just wasn't an A paper. That's all. As I read it, it just didn't strike me as an A paper. So that's the only reason. I didn't make any grammatical errors or spelling errors, you know, it was a good argument, he even said it was a good argument, but, well, it just, it just didn't strike me as an A paper. So I felt bad for a while. I was angry, but I wanted to be number one. So I understand how the apostles feel, and um, I think that we would, we would all acknowledge that sometimes we do too. And so Jesus says to them, <clears throat> well, who's greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? And, uh, you know, giving some thought to that, who would be greater? If you go to the restaurant, are, you're the one that's ordering your food? You're the greater one, right? Because they're bringing you your food. And you're paying the bill, by the way. So you're the greater one. The guy who waits the table, he's just a servant. And so that's just common sense. And Jesus then turns around and says, but I'm the one who came to serve. He's turning things on their head. <clears throat> He's saying, no, wait a minute. The one who reclines at the table may be from a human perspective, the one who deserves the great respect. He's the one of honor. But the reality is, the servant is the one. He's the one who's like me. So therefore, you serve as I serve. Great, great lesson for us all to learn. But then he goes on, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. So I assign to you, or I give to you, a kingdom. Um, I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now we may struggle with our interpretation of what he means by judging the twelve tribes of Israel, uh, trying to figure out exactly what he has in mind there. But what I want to draw your attention to is that um, I assign to you, or I give to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. Now that word kingdom, or that word assigned, um, right there, is the Greek word for making a covenant. And... Um, that particular Greek word and all of its related forms, I didn't get to go through every passage of the Old and New Testament that 
translated it. But at every one I looked at, in different books, Genesis, Exodus, Judges, Psalms, the Prophets, the Book of Hebrews, except for the Book of Hebrews, it's translated covenant. So what we have to understand is that what's in view here is not just assigning something. Uh, it's, it's, it's making a covenantal promise to the Son. Now in the book of Hebrews, that same word is sometimes translated um, a last will and testament. It's translated testament. Um, but it doesn't matter because it's still the will that's involved. It's the will of the Father to grant, by way of covenant, a covenant promise, or enacting a covenant, to His Son, a kingdom. What kingdom is He talking about? Well, I think He's talking about the Messianic kingdom, wherein right now Christ rules and reigns and he's currently subduing all of his enemies. And the larger the catechism tells us he's subduing all his and our enemies. Okay? That's where he's at right now. But if you read the book of 1 Corinthians as you come to the end of it, it says, the, Paul says, that when the time comes and then Jesus returns and then he will turn the kingdom over. What kingdom? Well, there's only one kingdom. And he's going to turn it over to God the Father. And so, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is, is really the kingdom of God. When Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, if you go through the Old Testament, when you look at the doctrine of salvation, being saved means to be saved, being saved from an enemy. It has to do with the reign of God. That's why when Jesus comes and he says he came to preach the kingdom of God, or the gospel of the kingdom of God, it's the good news that our Lord reigns. We may not see it, we may not sense it like Israel of old. They suffered and they didn't see it all the time. If you read the Psalms, you go through the Psalms and there's that theme, you know, the Lord is in control. You know, the Son is sitting on the throne and you, gotta, you better kiss the Son lest He gets angry. Well, as you go through the Psalms, the very next psalm, Psalm 3, says, Oh Lord, what's happening? And that theme carries through then virtually all the psalms. There are some that it doesn't, but that theme carries through. Why do the rich, why do the rich have all this, all the, all the benefits in this life, you know? Why do these people who are wicked rule and reign and all that? The psalmist wrestles with the same thing that we wrestle with. Jesus is the king. Jesus is on the throne. Really? What's happening in our world? You see, it's a challenge to our faith. And that's why what Peter says is so important. Our, our faith is tried all the time. Not necessarily with wickedness, but wrestling with the realities of life. Because Jesus is establishing His kingdom right now, and His kingdom is not of this world. And and the reason and, and what that means is that his kingdom does not come it's not right now it doesn't come and by it doesn't establish itself through power that's how 
we establish kingdoms or governments in our day through power. But Christ's kingdom comes through a different power. The power of the Spirit of God to change our hearts. And so this kingdom was covenanted with Christ. When was that? Uh, before the foundation of the world. If all this is hooked together, I'm not, if I'm right and it's all hooked together, then what you have is this happening before the foundation of the world. Well, we still ask the question why, right? Why Why would God create something and then, and then have it fall into sin and then redeem it with the blood of His own Son? Um, why would He do something like that? Well, let me just suggest something to you that um, that as I read the scripture, I, I've, I, I think that I'm on the right track. You remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned? Before, well, they sinned and then they went and hid in the trees, right? Like you could hide away from God, right? Like, I don't go hide from God. But... Um, but we see this image of God. What is He doing before He calls out to Adam? He's walking in the garden. What does that image of walking mean? I mean, do we actually see God walking? Well, I don't. I don't, I don't know. I'm not. That's not. I don't think that's the point. He's walking in the cool of the day. What? What's he walking? Then he calls out, Adam, where are you? You know, It sounds like God doesn't even know what's going on, but he really does. But it's given to us to create an image in our mind of God walking in our midst. Again, Genesis chapter 5. Remember when... Um, remember the, remember the, the man Enoch? Or Enoch? He, uh, everybody in, in Genesis chapter four and through five, everybody that lived died, right? Everybody, this one lived this many years and he died. This one lived that many years and he died. And they lived a long time. So so and so lived eight hundred years and he died. This one lived nine hundred years and he died. So then we come to Enoch, right? Oh, Enoch only lives about three hundred and fifty years, and but he didn't die. He walked with God, and so God took him. What is that image of walking? He walked with God. Well, we could say, well, that's obedience. Okay, that's true. But walking has more of the the imagery of living your life, right? It isn't just, I mean, it includes obedience. Okay, I'll agree with that. But nobody could be so obedient, could they? But Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. So he didn't die. We also read that Noah walked with God. And he was spared from the flood. He and his children and his, his son's wives, they were all spared from the flood. Well, there's a negative uh, view of walking, and that's in Colossians 3 where it talks about our sins and that we once walked in them. Well, that just means that we lived in sin. Mm -hmm. Right? So, 
I want you to get a picture in your mind of what walking with God is like. Turn to Psalm chapter 95. Psalm 95. And I'm going to... uh, Psalm 95. Oh, I wrote the wrong verse down. It's not 95. what happens when you get old you uh <laughs> you get your you get your references all all mixed up huh that's odd huh i uh, lost i lost it somewhere but let me just give you um it's a New English translation of the verse I'm referring to, and I will look it up and um, and send it to you. And the New English translation puts it like this. He's talking about his companion, and he says, We shared personal thoughts with each other. In God's house we would walk together among the crowd. Now, I want you to notice that the idea of sharing personal thoughts, fellowshipping, and walking, they go together. So that when we talk about walking in the New Testament, or in the Bible, what we're talking about is being in fellowship with God. Living our lives, as it were, with Him listening to him and he listens to us when we pray living our lives in such a way that we could we could we we um we live each moment as it were with god that doesn't mean that you don't go to school you don't study or any of that that's not what it means what it means is that with your studies and everything they relate to god too they don't just relate to you graduating from high school or going to college um, God is as concerned about what you do as you are. I think He's more concerned about what you do with your life than He than you are. The idea of being close together, the idea of being in fellowship, closeness. What does it speak of? It, it speaks of the same thing we have, does it not? Love. When you ask why God would create things like this or let things go this way or why he planned it to be this way, I don't have an answer except for this one. And that is that God loved us. God wanted fellowship with creatures outside of himself. Creatures who were not God. Now, if you ask me why he wanted that, then then I can't tell you. I don't know that. But what I can say is that God loves us and he wants what he created us to be to come to pass in our lives. 
He wants us to know his love that he gave to us in Christ. You remember Romans 5, right? For God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in um, Ephesians 1.4, in love he predestined us according to the good intention of his will. It's in love. And you can't go beyond that. You can't. It's like I asked you before. Why? How can you explain love? Well, you, if you're a scientist, you can say it's just chemicals in the brain. Uh, well, then love and hate really aren't very much different. Right? They really aren't. So you can't explain love. You can't get past that. There's not a why for that. This is like, why do you love your mom? Well, why do you? You, see, you could list a lot of things she does for you, you know. But is that really why you love her? What if she couldn't get up and walk? What if she was laying in bed and couldn't move and couldn't talk to you? Would you still love her? Well, I think you would. See, you can't explain love by what love does for you, and you can't explain love that you might have for your parents or your siblings or for the people in this church. It's not explicable. No. It's not rational. Mm -hmm. So, what I wanted you to see this morning is this. That God... In, I don't know what... In eternity, that's, I don't know how else to say it. That God, before everything ever was created, before anything was ever done, before any world or any people filled the world God had had covenant the, made a covenant to his son about a kingdom he promised eternal life through his son he promised the hope of eternal life through his son well who did he make the promise to his son we weren't there so all of these promises are made to Christ. This covenant is made with Christ. And that covenant is known in Reformed circles as the covenant of redemption. So the gospel doesn't go back to the fall where, oh my goodness, everybody blew it and they wrecked my plan, so now I've got to institute plan B. No, it goes back before time began in the eternal counsel of God and we call that a covenant of redemption. That is where the gospel begins. And it works its way out. It's, wor it's worked out then in the context of history. When Christ comes and gives his life for you and for me. That's where the gospel began. And that's what the scripture, I believe, teaches. A covenant of redemption. Just think of this. For those who are in Christ, God put you in Christ before time began. God knew who you would be. None of this, I mean, when we think of God, you know, running up against the wall and saying, oh, I gotta, I gotta do something else, that's not the way it works. That's not the God of Scripture. He's the God who is sovereign over all things. He's the creator of all things. That's why when Paul preaches in Acts 14 and Acts 17, 
He starts with the doctrine of creation. God is the creator of all things, heaven and earth. And it's that God who loves us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So do we trust him? Do we rely upon him? And if we do, do we walk with him? Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the day you've given to us and we thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you that you have um, done something in eternity that we, we don't really grasp. We only see these glimpses in Scripture it's revealed to us. And yet we can put together the doctrine that, that in eternity past, whatever that, whatever that is, whatever that means, in, before time began, you planned this beautiful, redemptive work of Christ. And all we can do is say, all we can do is say, Father in heaven, grant that we love you in return as you have loved us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to make this stool. Okay. Let's turn in our Psalters to Psalm number 2. It's been a while since we've sung this one, so let's go ahead and take a listen to it before singing.